welcome to Tiny Insect, episode 1.11, Food Poisoning. The Qing, like other Chinese dynasties before them, did not conceive of foreign policy as it is commonly understood today, or as it was understood by contemporary states in Europe and West Asia. Going all the way back to the Han, Chinese dynasties tried to fit what we think of as foreign policy into the principles of Confucian hierarchy and submission. This approach caused friction with the quote-unquote uncooked barbarians, like those coming from Europe. The distinction between quote-unquote cooked and uncooked barbarians was used by many Chinese dynasties to distinguish between foreigners who were outside the control of the central state and did not adhere to Chinese imperial ideology or Confucian ideas. Most importantly, they didn't necessarily recognize that they were subservient to the Chinese emperor. This system worked pretty well for successive Chinese dynasties until the 19th century, when it ran headlong into British demands for permanent European-style embassy, diplomatic equality between monarchs, and our quote-unquote free trade. The Qing state tailored its relationship style depending on the type of foreign state or society it was dealing with. The Mongols and other nomadic tribes to the north were handled through a special department that regulated trade and arranged marriages between daughters of the emperor and powerful nomadic princes, forming personal dynastic alliances to manage the threat of invasion from the north. Many conquerors of China, and even more invaders, had come from the north, including the Manchus themselves, so the northern steppe and the forest peoples received special attention. Another ministry, the Ministry of Rituals, was responsible for relationships between China and other civilizations that shared many aspects of Chinese culture. These are the cooked barbarians. The most important thing about the cooked barbarians is that they accepted, at least nominally, Chinese hegemony. These included neighbors like Korea, Thailand, Vietnam, and the Ryukyu Islands. These states, in their various permutations, had also adopted some Confucian practices, such as the Chinese calendar, bureaucratic structures, and imperial exam system. The Ming and Qing dynasties both exerted influence and control over these kingdoms through a series of ritualized interactions. These countries were peripheral, as the dynasties saw it, to the Chinese center. Each of them was invited to send tribute missions on a fixed schedule. Ritually, these visits acknowledged Chinese hegemony, they also served as opportunities for old-fashioned trade. Each mission might include hundreds of emissaries and lots and lots of stuff. Officials from the Ministry of Ritual met them at the border and escorted them to and from Beijing, where they resided in hostels dedicated to these events. All these interactions with other nations were designed to emphasize a key assertion of both Ming and Qing imperial ideology, that every foreign leader whether they knew it or not, was subservient to the emperor. The Ming and Qing states weren't quite sure how to fit the early European missionaries and emissaries into their existing system. China became a popular destination for ambitious European adventurers, merchants, and missionaries during the Yuan dynasty in the late 13th and 14th centuries. Marco Polo is the most famous from this generation, but many others made the trip overland and on Muslim ships plying the Indian Ocean. During the 16th and early 17th centuries, a 
Italian, Portuguese, Spanish, and Dutch merchants sailed around Africa to China and established mutually beneficial relationships with the Ming government. Early Catholic missionaries, Jesuits, and papal emissaries were supervised by the imperial household itself and lived highly managed and restricted lives in Beijing. The earliest Portuguese and Dutch traders were forced to register with the Ministry of Rituals as quote-unquote tributary nations and set to a fixed schedule for trade visits. The English were relative latecomers to China. A small English fleet finally arrived in the South China Sea in early summer 1637, bearing a letter from the English King Charles I, requesting permission to trade directly with Chinese merchants. The fleet's first stop was Macau, a settlement near Guangzhou that the Portuguese had leased from the Ming Dynasty back in 1554. Even though the Portuguese were required by the terms of their agreement with the Ming to allow other European traders to dock there, they told the English fleet to get lost. So, the English fleet sailed on toward Guangzhou, hoping to dock and trade directly with the Chinese there. They stopped in front of a narrow strait leading to the city known as Tiger's Mouth, which was guarded by several large forts bristling with cannon and supported by 20 war junks. The Chinese admiral invited the English representatives on board to discuss what they had come for. While they were not going to be allowed to enter Guangzhou, the admiral promised that he would get them a license to trade out of Macau because the Portuguese really should have let them dock there and not become his problem. So, the English fleet sailed back up to Macau, and they were like, Hey guys, the Chinese admiral over there said we can stay here and you aren't supposed to say no. But the Portuguese didn't listen and just said, No, go away. We don't like you. At this point, the English had basically three choices. They could turn around and go home to report to Charles what had happened. They could force the issue with the Portuguese, or they could force the issue with that Chinese admiral. I'm sure the English didn't want to take any risks starting a fight with the Portuguese that could have repercussions back in Europe. At this point, Portugal was part of the Habsburg Empire, and the last thing the English wanted was to get dragged back into the Thirty Years' War that was still raging on the continent. At the same time, they couldn't just turn around. A lot of money was riding on this venture. The King of England himself was among the pool of investors funding the trip. So, they chose door number three and sailed back up the delta toward the tiger's mouth. A firefight ensued. The forts blasted away, and the English ships returned fire. An English party of marines landed and captured one of the forts, pillaged and burned it. The English sent some envoys to parley to see if they could come to an arrangement, but the talks didn't work out, and the Chinese officials took the English envoys prisoner. The English did not take kindly to this, and set about destroying outlying Chinese villages and towns, burning and stealing whatever they could get their hands on until, finally, Ming officials capitulated and conceded that the English could indeed trade directly with their subjects in Guangzhou. Just please stop burning our villages and slaughtering our people. We'll sell you stuff. We will. I don't know if the word trade is really right after you've attacked someone, but that's how the English saw it. They were now free to trade. This all happened in 1637. And, as I discussed a few episodes back, the Ming were on their last legs. Silver-denominated inflation was spiraling out of control, and within a few years, rebels and foreign invaders would bring that dynasty to its end. In fact, 
This weakness might have been a reason why the English fleet were able to get their way at all. On the other side of the globe, the English were about to enter their own decades-long revolution and civil war. So, it would be many years until English merchants established any kind of regular trade with the people of China. When they did finally return, the English still didn't want to accept tributary nation status and came to an accommodation where they were allowed to trade at very specific places. That list initially included the island of Joshan and the Fujianese city of Xiamen, but that list was eventually limited to just a single city, Guangzhou. The system of trade out of Guangzhou became known as the quote-unquote Canton system, Canton being the name that the English used for the city of Guangzhou at the time, as we discussed in episode 1.6. By the beginning of the 1700s, the Qing shifted the other European nations to the Canton system as well, though they were also allowed to reside in the Portuguese lease of Macau. By now, Portugal was an independent nation again and in a strong alliance with the British. The British East India Trade Company, or EIC, began sending regular voyages to Guangzhou in 1720. Initially, the EIC sent fewer than a dozen ships every year. By the 1780s and 90s, the number had grown to somewhere between 60 and 80 ships a year and kept on growing year after year. To help facilitate trade out of Guangzhou, the Qianlong Emperor granted British and other Europeans a small parcel of land outside the walls of the main city where they could set up warehouses and living quarters. This area became known as the Guangzhou factories, even though they didn't manufacture anything there. Traders were allowed to live in the factories during the six-odd month-long trading season, which ran during the fall and winter, so it aligned with the monsoon sailing seasons. If Europeans wanted to stay in Asia during the other half of the year, they had to relocate to Macau or other colonial cities like Malacca or Singapore. During the trading season, Around 300 foreign men lived in Guangzhou, British, American, Prussian, Danish, Dutch, and others. There were 13 narrow buildings smushed together in blocks of three to six with narrow lanes between each. Each building was assigned to a particular nationality, though in practice they were not exclusive and residents crammed in basically wherever they could fit. The Qing took controlling these foreigners seriously and wanted to keep them in as helpless a position as possible. Keeping all the foreigners in a single block of buildings in a single city made it pretty easy to keep an eye on them. All foreign women were banned from the factories, something the Qing took very seriously. In 1830, a few enterprising men attempted to smuggle their wives in from Macau, dressed as men. When they were quickly caught, the local Chinese authority threatened to shut down the entire enclave if they were not immediately removed. Residents at the factories got in trouble with Qing authorities for planting shrubbery in the wrong place. Once, residents at the factory got in trouble with Qing authorities for planting shrubbery in the wrong place. When one agent from the EIC managed to learn Chinese in the mid-1700s and used this knowledge to write a petition to the emperor, he was thrown in prison and his Chinese teacher was executed. The factories weren't supposed to be comfortable and they definitely weren't a home. Through the 18th century, the British, just like the French and Dutch and just about everyone else, viewed the Qing state with awe. They did not see the weak, insular country that later propaganda would portray, 
but instead a strong, unified empire that deserved and demanded respect and emulation. In the eyes of 18th century Europe, the Qing Empire was a rich, populous, stable, and powerful empire that stood in stark contrast to the divided and constantly quarreling European states. The later image of an insular China, backward and needing a reform, grew out of the frustrated ambitions of the British free traders, such as Matheson and Hardeen, who published articles like Barbarism and Civilization, which we discussed last episode. The Qing emperors had no interest in playing by European rules of diplomacy or trade. He was the celestial emperor, and the foreigners must play by his rules. But that didn't stop the British from trying. One expedition to China in particular, dubbed the McCarthy Expedition after the name of its titular leader, is a great example of how friction can develop between states when they have completely different opinions on proper etiquette and perceptions of their own power. Lord McCartney arrived in Tianjin, the gateway from the ocean to Beijing, in late September 1793. McCarthy had left Britain almost a year before with a pair of ships, a Royal Navy ship of the line and a heavily armored merchant ship owned by the East India Company. He was accompanied by hundreds of advisors, servants, soldiers, and crew, and brought 600 crates of gifts for the Qianlong Emperor. Among the gifts was a state-of-the-art planetarium that had taken over 30 years to build. It was the best that late 18th century Britain had to offer. McCartney had come to meet the Qianlong Emperor to ask for permission for British traders to visit more than just Guangzhou and to establish a permanent embassy in Beijing. Lord McCartney was a heavyweight servant of the British Crown, a former governor of the British West Indies, Grenada, and Matras. He was the kind of person King George III thought made a high enough level ambassador to get a positive reception and an audience with the Emperor himself. The voyage was paid for by the EIC, though if it had been up to the company's directors, the voyage would not have happened. They were content with the status quo of the late 18th century. Instead, it was northern industrialists who wanted new markets for their cloth that pushed the foreign secretary to dispatch McCartney. From Tianjin, they sailed inland as far as they could go, and then marched overland to the emperor's summer residence at Jeho, north of the Great Wall. There, they traded goods, although the British had been forced to leave the planetarium and other particularly heavy objects back in Beijing. For the British, this was an exchange of gifts to proceed the serious talk. The Qing saw it differently. Embassies like McCartney's were handled by the Ministry of Rituals for a reason. This wasn't some exchange of goods produced at comparable advantage for the benefit of each party. No, it was a display of power, wealth, splendor. It was also an opportunity to trade so much as the British could ever expect to get. The point was to exchange and trade each nation's best. The British expedition were supposed to be happy with what they got now, not ask for the right to come and trade at some later date over and over again. By accepting these items, these gifts, the British implicitly received recognition from the emperor. For the other embassies that traveled to meet him, this was worth more than anything else. In return, Qianlong didn't really care what gifts he received. 
he wanted the bow. In later British accounts, this is about where things fell apart for Lord McCartney, over a critical point of court ritual, the kowtow. The kowtow was a ritual humbling of oneself, consisting of nine kneeling bows before the emperor. So, you get up on your knees and kiss the ground, basically, nine times, three sets of three. It was the same ritual that Qianlong's ministers performed for him on a pretty regular basis. Kowtowing to the emperor was something that other emissaries did without question, and so the Qing expected the British to do it as well. Emissaries of the other countries within the Qing tribute system recognized the Qing as the supreme power in East Asia, and the Qing emperor would then recognize their rule in their own home country. The kowtow was a ritualized expression of this relationship. McCartney thought this was completely inappropriate. He was a representative of King George III. In McCartney's eyes, Qianlong and King George were equal and equals do not prostrate themselves before the other. Even before his own king, he would only go to one knee and bow his head. He wouldn't do the same for another emperor or king or whoever. McCartney thought he had sent word ahead that he wouldn't be performing the kowtow and that this request was approved. But before meeting with the Qianlong emperor, he was told he'd be expected to do the kowtow. The man who delivered him this news was Hessian, who we met back in episode 1.5. Hessian, you'll remember, was the guy who was so gobsmackingly corrupt, already rich and powerful when he met McCartney. In just a few years, the White Lotus Rebellion would break out, and Hessian would use it to line his pockets even further. Hessian said that meeting Qianlong without performing the kowtow was impossible. I doubt he put the message this directly, but the message was basically like, dude, how could you expect the leader of such a great empire to consider himself equal with some random king from halfway around the world? The communications between the two men were not helped by the fact that Qianlong's interpreters were Catholic missionaries who the emperor kept as pets. The missionaries had agreed to never return home and were completely dependent on the emperor for their lives and livelihood. Qianlong even dressed them in Chinese-style clothes of his choosing. These missionaries rendered King George's letter using the court etiquette, which meant that they edited out all the potentially offensive language and replaced it with the courtly subservience that Qianlong was used to reading. This had the effect of making King George seem like just another leader who should subordinate themselves to Qianlong, not someone presenting himself as an equal. In the end, McCartney did receive an audience with Qianlong. All the British accounts said that this happened without him performing the kowtow. On the other hand, the Jiangqing Emperor told a later British embassy in 1816 that he had witnessed McCartney perform the kowtow and demanded that that latest ambassador do the same. Either way, the Qianlong Emperor was not amused by the arrogant behavior of the British emissaries. He wrote after their visit, Quote, when foreigners who come seeking audiences with me are sincere and submissive, then I always treat them with kindness. But if they come with arrogance, they get nothing. End quote. The British received a bunch of no's to their demands. No foreign minister in China. No change to the trade regime. It was working just fine. Thank you very much. Why should we make an exception and change how we've been doing things for more than a century for you, why should the largest and most powerful empire on earth 
give you such special treatment. The emperor expected that the British behave like the other foreign dignitaries with whom he was used to meeting. They came from places like Korea, Thailand, or the kingdoms in Central Asia to present gifts and supplicate themselves before him. In return, he would give them gifts of greater value and positively affirm their right to rule in their home territory. That was it. There wasn't going to be any economic or trade relation. Be happy with the nice stuff I give you. Even if McCartney had behaved properly and done a thousand kowtows, probably wouldn't have changed the Emperor's answer to the most important British requests, though the party would have been allowed to stay longer, had fancier parties, and maybe received some more tea and silk. As for the clocks, watches, telescopes, and lenses, all the state-of-the-art industrial products of England, quote, strange and costly objects do not interest me, wrote Qianlong in his rejection to McCartney's requests. Quote, we possess all things. I set no value on objects strange or ingenious and have no use for your country's manufactures, end quote. This attitude toward foreign objects followed Confucian philosophy and statecraft. One of the foundational Confucian books, the Book of Documents, states that, quote, when he does not look on foreign things as precious, foreigners will come to him. When it is real worth that is precious to him, his own people near at hand will be in a state of repose. End quote. Personally, Chenlong did actually find the British gifts fascinating, even if he couldn't state so publicly. In private, he'd written poetry about the beauty of the foreign glass and telescopes. He already had dozens of English clocks in his collection before McCartney's embassy. But admitting as much to the foreigners or showing any public interest would have violated the Confucian doctrine. To rub salt in the wound, Xianlong closed his reply by saying that he was sure that the British were simply ignorant in making their requests. Perhaps McCartney wasn't even acting on behalf of the king, who is surely not such an uncultured barbarian as the behavior of his ambassador suggested. Because he assumed such requests were made in ignorance, he, Qianlong, wouldn't revoke the privileges he had already granted the British. Qianlong recognized, correctly, at this point, that he had all the leverage. The British might need him, badly, but he didn't need them. And so, McCartney returned to Britain, tail tucked between his legs. Author Julia Lavelle writes that, quote, the British made an error of judgment in assessing their first influential encounter with high Qing diplomacy in 1793, allowing the ceremonial façade of the tribute system to obscure the pragmatic reality of Qing foreign policy. The Qing appetite for foreign languages, objects, and ideas grew directly out of a preoccupation with security that the 19th century European accounts read as xenophobia. End quote. Although the Qianlong Emperor rejected the ideas of expanding trade with the British for his own reasons, the free traders and other supporters of McCartney's expedition weren't completely deluding themselves to think that there was a potential market in the Qing Empire. In the 18th and first decades of the 19th century, those Qing subjects who were wealthy enough to have an opinion on the subject thought highly of British and European goods. Chinese retailers in the early 19th century, for example, often called goods quote-unquote Western, 
when seeking to sell them at a higher price. Many foreign goods, like clocks, furs, and glass, were highly sought after by China's wealthy. This perception applied to the EIC's opium as well. Cheaper opium could be had from the domestic market or imported overland from places like Afghanistan. But opium sold with the seal of the British East India Company was particularly fashionable and en vogue and could demand a higher price. Then, there was the fact that something like a third of humanity living in 1800 resided in the Qing Empire. It was a vast, vast market, and the British wanted in. Among some at court, the Qianlong's policy of allowing trade in Guangzhou was still too permissive. A class of conservative scholars, such as Bao Shichen, advocated permanently expelling foreign traders from Guangzhou and banning all quote-unquote sumptuous foreign imports, not just opium. Bao also advocated that native Chinese stop growing non-food crops like tobacco or distilling grain to produce alcohol. He probably would have been good friends with the more puritanical members of British society. His hatred of foreign traders came more from a vision of Chinese economic prosperity that prioritized self-sufficiency than it was from xenophobia. He also worried, as early as 1801, that the opium trade was a drain on China's silver species supply, which, as far as I can tell, was two decades ahead of most of his peers. McCartney's embassy to Beijing had departed Britain on the eve of his country's entry into war with revolutionary France, a war that would stretch on more or less continuously for the next two decades. When Britain emerged on the other side and Napoleon was exiled for a second time, many British believed that their country was the most powerful in the world. The British Navy, for its part, was certainly unrivaled. Also since the failed expedition, the British in Guangzhou had taken a much more active interest in Chinese languages and the political fortunes of their hosts. They'd almost certainly heard about the trouble that Qing had faced defeating the White Lotus Rebellion, and they witnessed firsthand how fleets of pirates harried the coast and swatted away the Qing Navy during the first decade of the 19th century before the Qing managed to recruit the pirate queen Zheng Yixiao and her navy to their side. Because when you can't beat them, buy them out. The British tried to send another embassy to Beijing after the end of the war in 1816. It was markedly less ambitious than McCartney's had been, betting that getting something was better than walking away empty-handed. Nonetheless, they walked away empty-handed, without having even met with the Jiaqing Emperor. Though to be fair to the British, Jiaqing ended up punishing those responsible for shepherding his guests, because he actually had wanted to meet with the British, and his ministers had just messed it up. But he still probably wouldn't have given them anything. After Parliament banned the EIC from training in Guangzhou in 1833, the British government had to figure out how to manage its interests in China. Although nominally private, the EIC had been responsible for communicating British policy to the Qing, even if it was frustratingly indirect. So, the British created a position of Chief Superintendent of Trade in Guangzhou. Unlike the former EIC leadership, who had both formal and informal control over the British traders in Guangzhou, the new superintendent had no actual power over the British subjects in China. He was supposed to look after their best interests and act as a quasi-ambassador, 
but could neither compel British citizens to do anything nor communicate with the Qing officials who didn't want to talk to him. The first man to be chosen for this auspicious appointment was Lord William Napier. Lord William Napier was a veteran of the British Navy and a sheep farmer. He served as a peer of Scotland in the House of Lords for eight years before losing the election that followed the Reform Act that expanded the electorate. We talked about that a few episodes ago. This was the same Reform Act that had led to the revocation of the EIC's monopoly on trade in Guangzhou. Out of a job, Napier started lobbying his good friend, King William IV, for this new appointment. Although Napier wouldn't have much power over British subjects, he would have a 28-gun frigate named Andromeda. If you've ever seen the Russell Crowe movie, Master and Commander, the ship in that was about the same size. A modern European warship, but pretty small compared to an 80 or 100 gun ship of the line that would be sent to do battle with an opposing European navy. Prime Minister Lord Grey tried to get someone more qualified to take the job, but couldn't fill the position before the king forced his hand. Upon selecting Napier, well, upon settling for Napier, Lord Grey instructed him to use persuasion and conciliation and to avoid hostile or menacing language in his dealings with the Qing. The foreign minister, Lord Palmerston, instructed him in very specific details how to not piss off the Qing. Don't go to Beijing. Don't try to survey the coast. Don't take decisive action without permission. Permission that would take about a year to receive any response. For his part, Napier brought quite a few ideas for what he wanted to do in this new role. He wrote in his journal that he wanted to use the power of the British Navy to, quote, raise a revolution and cause them to open their ports to the trading world. I should like to be the medium of such a change, end quote. It didn't matter that Napier knew nothing about the Qing Empire, even believing its population was about a tenth of the actual number, which he still considered to be enormous. The people of China, he convinced himself without actually talking to any citizens of the empire, were just waiting for the British to emancipate them from the trade restrictions and the Hong system. Wars are always good and easy to win, and oppressed people always welcome foreigners shelling their cities with gunboats. He also believed that, in relation to China, quote, every act of violence on our part has been productive of instant redress and other beneficial results, end quote. And like Gutzloff and the other free traders I talked about last episode, Napier believed that the Chinese people were just waiting for the opportunity to trade with the British, and were only prevented from doing so by the backwards Manchus. Sitting aboard Andromeda, daydreaming about what he might accomplish, Napier fantasized about expelling the Qing from China altogether and setting up a new puppet dynasty answerable to British demands alone. Lord Napier arrived in Macau in the middle of July, 1834. His instructions from Foreign Minister Palmerson, which, as I said, were pretty exacting, said he should announce himself to the Chinese authorities as soon as he arrived. When Palmerson wrote these instructions, though, he almost certainly wasn't being literal or thinking of the peculiarities of how communications in Guangzhou worked. He was issuing bland instructions to follow standard European diplomatic protocol in which an official representative from a foreign government should make their presence known when on foreign soil. This traditionally affords the diplomat special protections, as diplomats receive today, 
and ensures that they're not taken for an illegitimate agent or a spy. And that's not how the Qing state ran their foreign policy in Guangzhou. Qing Protocol dictated that Napier wait in Macau while sending for permission to enter Guangzhou via the Hong Merchants, a group we met last episode, who counted among their members probably the richest private citizen living on the planet at the time, Wu Bingjiang. Protocol in which foreigners were supposed to only communicate with Qing officials indirectly through the Hong Merchants went back for generations. To get a sense for how strange this struck Lord Napier, Imagine if today's Chinese merchants could only trade with the United States through the port of Seattle, and they weren't allowed to speak to anyone in the United States government or the governor of Washington state, but instead had to direct all of their communications through Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and a tiny clique of other Seattle billionaires while they waited on one of the San Juan Islands, just kind of biding their time. Lord Napier didn't want to deal with any of that. Napier thought that this placed him in the exact same position as the mere merchants of the East India Company, which he thought insulting for a chief superintendent and friend of the king. So, instead of waiting, he took a small boat to the Guangzhou factory and wrote a letter of introduction to the governor general of Guangzhou and Guangxi provinces, Lu Kun. Lu Kun was a seasoned scholar and administrator in the Qing government. He earned his Jinshu degree at the relatively young age of 27. By the time Lord Napier entered his life, he was in his early 60s and serving in his fourth and probably most prestigious governorship. Shortly after Lord Napier arrived in Guangzhou, Governor Liu dispatched Hong merchant Wu to meet with the foreigner and ask him to please, please return to Macau and await permission to enter Guangzhou. Wu also had instructions to figure out just what Napier was up to so that he could write Guang Emperor for instructions. Lu knew that the EIC had left already, and a new accommodation with the troublesome British would need to be reached, and also that he was not empowered to make said accommodation without consulting the Emperor. Not only did Napier ignore Wu's request, he then proceeded as if the meeting had never taken place. He dispatched some merchants to deliver his letter directly to the governor. They were confronted by Wu, who asked them to please, please go home, but they refused and spent the next several hours trying to force the letter into the hands of any poor Qing official who happened to be trying to enter the governor's compound at the time. No one took the letter. It went on like this for several weeks, with Napier trying to get his letter delivered directly to the hands of a Qing official, while Wu and several other Hong merchants tried to convince him to please behave himself and go back to Macau. At night, Lord Napier befriended and dined with several of his fellow Scotsmen, including the supreme free trade proponents of Hardeen and Matheson, who supported Napier in taking such a hard and uncompromising line in his approach to dealing with the Qing. After trying to get his letter to the Governor General for several weeks, Napier heard he'd soon be receiving a visit from several actual Qing officials instead of just Hong merchants. Was he getting somewhere? No. Liu had decided that the heat needed to be turned up on Lord Napier, and the message from these Qing officials was that Napier had better leave Guangzhou or all trade with the factory would cease. Napier scoffed at this and decided that being Mr. Nice Guy wasn't getting him what he wanted, and it was time for Plan B. Posters. He had a poster written up, 
printed and plastered around the Guangzhou factory that announced to the local merchants and shopkeepers that Lu Kun was treating him very unfairly. All he wanted was to have free trade with them, but their livelihoods were being threatened by their governor general and the Hong merchants because they would suffer if the trade was shut down over his presence in the city. I think the idea was to spark the revolution Napier believed was just waiting to happen and that he could instigate. The situation Napier thought he saw was a singular quote-unquote Chinese people living under the thumb of a foreign people, the Manchus, and I think he assumed that their passions would be kindled by his calls to national identity as ideas of national identity were really beginning to take hold in Europe at the time. Lu Kun was not happy, to say the least, about this, and the next day another set of posters went up, announcing that a quote, lawless foreign slave put up the previous day's posters, and that we quote, no not such a dog barbarian can have the audacious presumption to call yourself a superintendent, end quote. It ended with a threat to cut off Lord Napier's head and display it on a pike. About a week later, Governor Liu ordered his soldiers to surround the foreign compound. Trade with the foreigners was over. Native Chinese servants were ordered to evacuate, and all deliveries of food to the factories were halted. For Lord Napier, this was a declaration of war, and he wrote to the Governor General and the Hong merchants telling them as much. Napier believed that his predecessors, men like Lord McCartney, had been pushovers. The Qing would only concede to British demands if they were met with strong, violent will. So Napier sent orders that the Andromeda and another similarly equipped frigate should attack the forts protecting the entrance to Guangzhou and take up a position closer to the factories where they would be able to protect the Europeans stranded there. The next day, the two frigates bombarded the forts while suffering only a handful of casualties from return fire. Unfortunately, the wind was against them, and before they could make any serious headway, the Qing had sunk objects blocking their path further up the river. Inside the foreign factories, Napier quickly lost the support of those he thought he was trying to help. Hardeen, Matheson, and a handful of others stuck with him. But most of the traders just wanted Napier to get out and go to Macau so that they could just keep on trading. He wasn't going to win this fight, and he was costing them a lot of money. So Lord Napier got on a boat and left. When the British Foreign Secretary received Napier's letter informing him of the order to attack the forts, he was not happy. He wrote back to Napier that, quote, It is not by force and violence that His Majesty intends to establish a commercial intercourse between his subjects and China. But Napier would never receive Lord Palmerston's chastisement. He got sick, as so many Europeans traveling to the tropics and the subtropics did in the 19th century. Within a few weeks of his ignoble retreat from Guangzhou, Lord Napier was dead. For 300 years, British traders, diplomats, and Navy officials tried to extract confessions from the ruling Chinese dynasty. Whether they came in with guns blazing or their hands filled with gifts of the most advanced scientific tools Europe could offer, the British received the same answer. It's our way or the highway. No matter what they tried, the Qing set the ultimate terms of the trade. If a British proposal didn't fit the interests of the Qing dynasty, and they usually didn't, then it wasn't going to happen. 
Beijing and her representatives weren't all powerful. They had a very hard time protecting their own coastline against local pirates, and corruption grew rampant as the 19th century progressed. When it came to the British and other European and then American traders, merchants, and diplomats, the Qing had them confined to a few acres of cramped buildings on the edge of their massive empire, just where they wanted them. As we've seen, the British didn't really care for this treatment. They'd grown accustomed to pushing around foreign princes in the Americas and South Asia, imposing their will where and when it suited them. As the 18th century grew into the 19th, and especially after the defeat of Napoleon, it usually suited the British to impose their will. Where McCartney's mission sought to put Britain on equal footing with the wealthy and powerful Chinese state, Lord Napier believed that he was following in the footsteps of men like Robert Clive, who had led British forces in the conquest of Bengal. European military technology and Alon would topple a decrepit Asiatic empire, and the jewels and riches would flow into his hands. Things didn't work out that way for Lord Napier, but his defeat would be the last time that the Qing managed to resist the will of a British officer backed by Her Royal Majesty's Navy. Hardin and Matheson wasted no time after Lord Napier's death, calling for a further escalation of violence and a blockade against the Qing. The Qing had violated British honor, and this offense must not stand, and Lord Napier must be avenged. National dignity and the new faith of free trade demanded it. Probably the best summation of this campaign came from the widowed Lady Napier, who wrote that, quote, If some show of apology is made, if we succeed in obtaining a commercial treaty, increasing trade, intercourse, civilization, and in God's good time, Christianity will follow, and it will not be altogether in vain that Lord Napier sacrificed his health and life in the path he considered his duty and for his country's advantage. Next episode, Lady Napier's wishes will move closer to fruition when a new, zealous governor-general named Lin Zexu arrives in Guangzhou, determined to rid his country of foreign opium for good. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a 5-star rating and review. Ratings and reviews will help other listeners find the show. If you have any feedback for the show, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TinyInsectPod. Thanks.